You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals, from the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. Welcome back to Outlaws and Gunslingers with your host, Bang and Dang. Bang here, Dang, to my right. And we are back for a pretty brutal, brutal, brutal case here tonight. Everybody knows it. Everybody uh, was enthralled by it in 1995, or 94, I should say. Um, White Bronco, blood. I think you got it by now. O.J. Simpson. That's right. We don't do really too many murder cases like this, um, Mm. but... It didn't fit in with the upcoming serial killer uh, um, series or show that we're we're gonna do down the line. So figured might as well get it out of the way here, and it's pretty damn interesting. Uh, captured the nation, obviously. This is the probably the only trial that I've actually seen my whole family sitting down watching. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. The verdict. Right. Everybody sat down, dude. It was like the verdict of this. It was like a global phenomenon, dude. Everybody was crazy. like sitting down, mussy, mm, mussy TV, crazy. Obviously, you know what we're talking about. O.J. Simpson murdered his, well, allegedly murdered his wife mm. Nicole Brown and a waiter that may or may not have been her boyfriend, Ron Goldman, and a pretty grisly murder, especially on her part. Oh, what happened to her? It's just whew. right. That was rough. Nicole Brown met O.J. Simpson in 1977 when she was 18 and working as a waitress at the Daisy, mm. which is a Beverly Hills private club. They began dating even though Simpson was already married. Well, there's your first sign. Simpson filed for divorce from his first wife in March of 79 and married Brown on February 2nd, 1985. Jeez. Wow. Jeez. Brown and Simpson went on to have two children, Sidney, born in 1985, and Justin, born in 88. According to Dr. Lenore Walker, the Simpson-Brown marriage was a textbook example of domestic abuse. Oh, wow. Already. Dang. Brown signed a prenuptial agreement, was prohibited from working while married. She wrote that she felt conflicted about notifying the police of the abuse because she was financially dependent on Simpson. Right. That's why he did it. Right. Brown described an incident in which Simpson broke her arm during a fight. Jeez. In order to prevent him from being arrested, she told emergency room staff that she had fallen off her bike. Mm. Wow. That's the old uh, fell and hit the doorknob Mm. uh, story, Mm. huh? She wrote about him beating her in public during sex and even in front of family and friends. Why didn't none of them say anything? Dang, during sex? Up to 62 incidents of abuse. Dang. The police were notified only eight times, and Simpson was arrested once. February 25th, 1992, Brown filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences, obviously. All right. Brown said that Simpson stalked and harassed her after they divorced. After they divorced, an intimidation tactic meant to force the victim to return to the abuser. Wow. He was like, you better come with me. She documented an incident in which she spied on her, having sex with her new boyfriend. Weird. Well, afterwards, Brown said she felt her life was in danger because Simpson had threatened to kill her if he ever found her with another man. But he did. Right. So she drafted a will. <laughs> wow. Brown telephoned Sojourn. Sojourn. Sojourn? I guess. As a woman's shelter on the 8th of June in 1994. Mm. She was considering staying at the shelter because she was afraid of what Simpson might do to her as she was refusing his pleas to reconcile their marriage. And had reported a set of keys missing from her house a few weeks earlier, Uh-oh. which were later found on Simpson when he was arrested. Oh, no. For the murders. So, 
Wow. You can't be having the key on you, right. guys. A few months before the murders, OJ completed a film pilot for Frogmen, hmm? an adventure series similar to the A-Team. Simpson played the lead role of Bullfrog, Burke, who led a group of former U.S. Navy SEALs. He received a fair amount of military training, and including using a, of a knife. Oh, jeez. Oh, and holds a knife to the throat of a woman playing the role of his daughter in one scene. Dang, uh-huh. now he's... They're like, you're pretty good at domestic violence, right? This scene will work well for you. I'm, I'm, ser- I'm, I'm um, wondering what the hell the scene was about, that he has to hold a knife to his daughter's neck. Right. A 25-minute tape of the pilot, which did not include the knife scene, was found by investigators and watched on Simpsons television <laughs> <laughs> as they searched the home. Well, so they popped it in. Like, oh, might as well watch this. Right. Wow. Dang, this would have been a good series. Defense, right. <laughs> well, if only he would hold a, neck or a knife right. to someone's neck. <laughs> the defense tried to block its use on these grounds, but the judge, but Judge Ito allowed the tape to be shown. However, However, the prosecution never introduced it as evidence during the trial. Why would they? Right. It was reported that well, this is stupid. Anyways, it was reported that among the skills of the character of Bullfrog Burke was night killing. Oh, geez. And the silent kill technique of slashing the throat. Oh. And that seals regularly wear knit watch caps like the one found at the scene. Oh, geez. This dude just played his. He played his character. Well, apparently the prosecution didn't think it was too important because they didn't even have it in evidence. On the evening of June 12, 1994, Brown and Simpson both attended their daughter Sydney's dance recital at Paul Revere Middle School. After, well, I would be at Paul Revere Middle School in California. What? Afterwards, Brown and her family went to eat at a Mezzaluna restaurant. They did not invite Simpson to join them. Why would they? One of the writers at the restaurant was Ron Goldman, who had become close friends with Brown in recent weeks but was not assigned to the Brown's family table. Hmm. Okay. Well, Brown and her children then went to Ben and Jerry's before returning to Brown's condominium in Bundy Drive, Brentwood. Uh-oh. The manager of Mezzaluna recounted that Brown's mother telephoned the restaurant at 9.37 p.m. about a pair of lost eyeglasses. The manager found the glasses and put them in a white envelope, which Goldman took with him as he left the restaurant at the end of his shift at 9.50, intending to drop it off at Brown's place. Okay. Yeah, get it. Close friends. I'll drop them off. Right. Meanwhile, Simpson ate takeout food from McDonald's with Cato Kalin. Oh, jeez. A bit part actor and family friend who had been given the use of the guest house of Simpson's on Simpson's estate. Rumors circulated that Simpson had been on drugs at the time of the moita. The New York Post's Cindy Adams reported that the pair had actually gone to a local Burger King instead of McDonald's. matter. Where, I guess it might, right? Where a prominent drug dealer known as only as JR had admitted to selling them crystal meth. Oh, mm. Got OJ on crystal meth? High on crystal, huh? Mm. Brown's neighbors testified that they heard profuse barking coming from outside throughout the night, beginning around 10.15. Around 10.55, a dog walker who lived a few blocks away from Brown came across Brown's Akita dog barking in the street outside her home. Mm. The Akita, whose legs were covered in blood, followed the man home. He tried to walk the dog back to where he found it, but the dog resisted. All right. Later on, he left the Akita with a neighboring couple who offered to keep the dog overnight. As the dog was agitated, the couple decided to walk it back to where it had been found. Right. This dog won't stop barking. He's trying to alert you guys of what the hell just happened here. Jeez, O.P. Around midnight, as they reached the area where the Akita had been found, the dog stopped outside Brown's home, and the couple saw Brown's body lying outside the house. Police were called to the scene and found Goldman's body near Brown's. The front door to Brown's condominium was open when the bodies were found, but there are no signs that anyone had entered the building by breaking in or otherwise. Brown's body was laying face down, barefoot, at the bottom of the stairs leading to the door. The walkway leading to the stairs was covered in blood, but the soles of Brown's feet were clean, 
Based on this evidence, investigators concluded that she was the first person to be killed and the intended target. Right. She had been stabbed multiple times in the head and neck. Oh, jeez. But, uh, but there were a few defensive wounds on her hands, implying a short struggle to investigators. In the head? Yeah. Oh. It probably was just swinging, dude. Right. The final wound inflicted ran deep into her neck, severing her carotid artery. A large bruise in the center of her upper back with a corresponding footprint on her clothing indicated to investigators that... After killing Goldman, the assailant returned to Brown's body, stood on her back, pulled her head back by the hair, and slit her throat. Oh, jeez. Mm. Wow. Her larynx could be seen through the gaping wound in her neck. Vertebrae C3 was incised. Oh, jeez, dude. That was deep. Brown's head barely remained attached to her body. Oh, my goodness. Goldman's body lay nearby, close to a tree and the fence. He had been stabbed multiple times in the body and neck. But there were relatively few defensive wounds on his hands, signifying a short struggle to investigators. Yeah, he was moited first. He's the man. You got to get rid of him. Like, quick. Well, he wasn't murdered first. Yeah, it had to be. he had to be murdered first. They just said. I know. That's what they think. Le- uh-huh. Leaving to believe. What was this guy doing while he was murdering Nicole? Just watching. Maybe he showed up in the aftermath. Hmm. Forensic evidence from L.A. County coroner alleged that the assailant stabbed Goldman with one hand while holding him in a chokehold. Wow. Near Goldman's body were a blue knit cap, a left hand, extra large Aris isotoner light leather glove, the old famous glove, and the envelope containing the glasses that he was returning. Detectives determined that Goldman came to Nicole's house during her killing and that the killer killed him to silence Goldman and remove any witnesses. A trail of the assailant's bloody shoe prints ran through... Ran through the back gate. To to the left of some of the prints were drops of blood from the assailant, who was apparently bleeding from the left hand. Uh-oh. Measuring the distance between the prints indicated that the assailant walked rather than ran away from the scene. So they had blood from the murderer. Nonchalantly just walked away after he just brutally murdered well, these was, two. Was OJ's hand cut? Well, we're about to see that, won't we? All right. On the night of June 12th, Simpson was scheduled to board a red-eye flight from L.A. International Airport to Chicago. Well, he was due to play golf the following day at the convention with representatives of Hertz Rental Car Corporation, for whom he was a spokesperson. The flight was due to leave at 11.45, and a limousine arrived early at Simpson's Rockingham Estate to pick him up at around 10.25 p.m. The limousine driver drove around to the estate to make sure he could navigate the area with the stretched limo properly and to see which driveway would have the best access for the limo. Okay. All right. He began to buzz the intercom at 10.40, getting no response. He noted the house was dark and nobody appeared to be home as he smoked a cigarette and made several calls to his boss to get Simpson's home phone number. He testified that at one point he saw a figure the same size as Simpson enter the house through the front door from where the driveway starts before the lights came on. He did not see what direction the figure came from, though. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, he testified that he saw Simpson's house number on the curb outside the estate, but no car was parked there. Prosecution presented exhibits showing the position next to the house number on the curb in which Simpson's Ford Bronco was found the next morning implying that the limousine driver would surely have noticed the Bronco if it had been uh, there when he arrived to pick up Simpson. Right. How do you not notice a white Bronco? Right. Around the time uh, the limousine driver witnessed a shadowy figure head towards the south walkway where the bloody glove would later be found, Cato Kaline was having a telephone conversation with a friend. At approximately 10.40, something crashed into the wall of his guest house, uh, uh, which he described as three thumps and which he feared was an earthquake. K-Line hung up the phone and ventured outside to investigate the noises, but did not go directly down the dark south pathway. He was like, no, man, <laughs> from which the thumps had originated. He's like, I ain't coming down there. No. Instead, though, he walked in front of the property. We saw the limousine parked outside. k 
Kalen left the limousine in. Simpson finally came out through the front door a few minutes later, claiming he had overslept. Both the limousine driver and Kalen would later testify that Simpson seemed agitated that night. Well, some people are when they first wake up. Oh, man. The limo driver noted that on the way to the airport, OJ complained about how hot it was. He was sweating and he rolled down the window, despite it not being warm night. Some people get hot, man. Right, jeez. The driver also testified that he loaded four luggage bags into the car that night, one of them being a knapsack that Simpson would not let him touch, <laughs> insisting he loaded himself. Okay, a, a knapsack. Uh, a porter at the airport testified that Simpson only checked three bags that night. Oh. And the police determined that the missing luggage was the same knapsack that the limo driver had mentioned earlier. What you do with a knapsack, OJ? Oh, no. Another witness not heard at the trial. Claimed he saw Simpson at the airport discarding items from a bag into a trash can. Oh, sure. Did it look like a knapsack? You know what? It it did. Detective Tommy Lange and Philip Van Van Adder believe this is how the murder weapon, the shoes, clothes that Simpson wore during the murder, were disposed. Couldn't they check? Right. That's too late now, but... A passenger on the plane and the pilot testified to not noticing any cuts or wounds on Simpson's hands. A broken glass, a note with a telephone number on it, and bed sheets with blood on them were all recovered from Simpson's room at O'Hare Plaza Hotel. Broken glass. Wow. The manager of the hotel recalled Simpson asking for a Band-Aid for his finger at the front desk because he had cut it on pieces of notepaper. So what's up with the broken glass? Right. This makes no sense. <laughs> he looks guilty in that picture. <laughs> he just always looks guilty. <laughs> hey, Twitter world. <laughs> After learning that Brown was the female victim, LAPD Commander Keith Bushy ordered Detectives Tom Lange, Philip Vanatter, Ron Phillips, and Mark Furman to notify Simpson of her death and to escort him to the police station to pick up the former couple's children who were asleep in the, in the condominium at the time of the murders. Jeez. Wow. The detectives buzzed the intercom at Simpson's estate for over 30 minutes but received no response. They didn't have his number. All right. Where was K-Line? All right. They noted that Simpson's car was parked at an awkward angle with his back end out more than the front, and that there was blood on the door, which they feared meant someone inside might be hurt. Mm. Van Adder instructed Furman to scale the wall and unlock the gate to allow the other three detectives to enter. The detectives would argue they entered without a search warrant because of exigent circumstances. Well, obviously, when they see blood. Right. Specifically out of fear that someone inside might be injured. Right. You just don't have blood on the car right. for no reason. Makes sense. Furman briefly interviewed Kaline, who told the detective that the car belonged to Simpson and that earlier that night he had heard thumps on his wall. Uh-oh. In a walk around the premises to inspect what may have caused the thumps, Furman discovered a blood-stained right-hand glove. Right hand, though. Oh, so the left one was already at the scene. Right, right, right. Mm. Which was determined to be the mate of the left-hand glove found next to the body of Goldman. Wow. So they found one there and in Simpson's property? Yeah. Oh, wow. This evidence was determined to be probable cause to issue an arrest warrant for Simpson. Right. Why didn't they do it for uh, K-Line? It was behind his guest house. I think they both both got arrested at one point. Mm. Philip testified. Probably not, though. Philip testified that when he called Simpson in Chicago to tell him of Brown's murder, Simpson sounded very upset, but was oddly unconcerned about the circumstances of her death. Phillips know that Simpson only asked if the children had seen the murder or Brown's body. I mean, that's a, a legitimate question. Right. But was not concerned about whether the assailant had harmed the children either. The police contacted hmm. Simpson at his home on 13th of June and took him to Parker Center for questioning. Hmm. Hmm. Well, Lang noticed that Simpson had a cut on his finger on his left hand that was consistent with where the killer was bleeding from. Well, they didn't know where yeah, right. he was bleeding from. And asked Simpson how he got the cut. At first, he claimed he cut his finger accidentally while in Chicago after learning of Brown's death. 
Lange then informed Simpson that blood was found inside his car. At this point, Simpson admitted that he cut his finger on June 12th, but said he did not remember how. Oh, no. How is that? <sighs> There's it, enough evidence right there to, to convict any man in the United States. Yeah. Wow. He voluntarily gave some of his own blood for comparison with evidence collected at the crime scene and was released. 14th of June, Simpson hired lawyer Robert Shapiro, who began assembling Simpson's team of lawyers, referred to as the Dream Team. Dream Team. Shapiro noted that an increasingly distraught Simpson had begun treatment for depression. Hmm. The following days, preliminary results from DNA testing came back with matches to Simpson, but the district attorney delayed filing charges until all the results had come back. Simpson spent the night between June 16th and 17th at San Fernando Valley home of friend Robert Kardashian. Hmm. That's how Kim Kardashian was born. No, it was Chloe. Chloe. Shapiro asked several doctors to attend Simpson's purported fragile mental state. Um, did they test only the blood on the Bronco at this point, or did they test the blood at the crime scene, too? They tested it at the crime scene. Because if they tested it at the crime scene and it came back a match for him, right. he should have immediately been in jail. Immediately. On June 17th, detectives recommended that Simpson be charged with two counts of first-degree murder with right. special circumstance of multiple killings after the final DNA results came back. Right. LAPD notified Shapiro at 8.30 a.m. that Simpson would have to turn himself in that day. At 9.30 a.m., Shapiro went to Kardashian's home to tell Simpson that he would have to turn himself in by 11, an hour after the murder charges were filed. Simpson told Shapiro that he wanted to turn himself in, to which the police agreed, believing that someone as famous as Simpson would not attempt to flee. Right. Right. Where is he going to go? Right. Well, the police agreed to delay Simpson's surrender until noon the next day to allow him to be seen by a mental health specialist as he was showing signs of suicidal depression. He had updated his will, called his mother and children, Rent three sealed letters, one to his children, one to his mother, and one to the public. Mm. More than 1,000 reporters waited for Simpson's perp walk at the police station, but he did not arrive as stipulated. LAPD then notified Shapiro that Simpson would be arrested at Kardashian's home. Well, Kardashian and Shapiro told Simpson this, but when the police arrived an hour later, Simpson and Al Cowlings had disappeared. Oh, jeez. three sealed letters Simpson had written were left behind. At 1.50 p.m., Commander Dave Gaskin... LAPD's chief spokesman publicly declared Simpson a fugitive. Police issued an all-points bulletin for him and an arrest warrant for Collins. Uh, I mean, it's on now, dude. Everything that's happened so far, he shouldn't even have had a freaking trial. I mean, they got to have even, a trial. But. They shouldn't even let him turn himself in. They should have immediately went over there and arrested him. Right. This is ridiculous. They found blood of his. That matched. They found a glove at each property. Both gloves are the same. There's blood in his freaking vehicle. He has a cut on his hand. He says he's going to turn himself in it, but then he disappears. Oh, wow. 5 p.m., Kardashian and one of the defense lawyers read Simpson's public letter. In the letter, Simpson sent greetings to 24 friends and wrote, First, everyone understand I had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. Is that what you say when you have nothing something to do, to do with right. the murder? <laughs> he described the fights with Brown and their decision not to reconcile the relationship and asked the media as a last wish not to bother his children. Hmm. He wrote to his then-girlfriend, Paula Barberi, I'm sorry, we're not going to have our chance. As I leave you, you'll be in my thoughts. Right. It also included, I can't go on, and an apology to the Goldman family. Why are you apologizing to the Goldman family? Right. The letter concluded, don't feel sorry for me. I have had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. Mm. Most interpreted this as a suicide note. Simpson's mother collapsed after hearing it, and reporters joined the search for Simpson. At Kardashian's press conference, Shapiro said that he and Simpson's psychiatrist agreed with the suicide note interpretation. Through television, Shapiro appealed to Simpson to surrender. Right. Sure he did. News helicopter searched the L.A. highway system for Colleen's white Ford Bronco. 
That wasn't OJ's board? No, they had two identical ones. At 5.51 p.m. I Simpson think they had the, uh, his in evidence. Right. At 5.51 p.m., Simpson reportedly called 911. The call was traced to Santa Ana Fairway. Or Freeway. Right, Freeway, near Lake Forest. At around 6.20 p.m., a motorist in Orange County notified California Highway Patrol. After seeing someone believed to be Simpson riding in a Bronco on the I-5 freeway leading north. The police tracked calls placed by Simpson on his cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> At 6.45 p.m., police officer Ruth Dixon saw the Bronco headed north on Interstate 405. When she caught up to it, Collins yelled out, that, yelled out that Simpson was in the back seat of the vehicle and was pointing a gun at his own head. Yep, there it is. The officer backed off but followed the vehicle at 35 miles per hour with up to 20 police cars, cars following her in the chase. Yeah, chase. it was the slowest chase in freaking history. Uh, Zoe Turr of KCBS-TV was the first to find Simpson from a news helicopter after colleagues heard that the FBI's mobile phone tracking had located Simpson at the El Toro Y. Oh, jeez. More than nine news helicopters. We got nine helicopters. Everybody, dude. Eventually joined to pursue. Turr compared the fleet to Apocalypse Now, and the high degree of media participation caused camera signals to appear on incorrect television signals. I'm sure it did. Oh, my goodness. It was just everywhere. You're watching Spongebob or something, or Rugrats. I don't know about Spongebob, but... Be Rugrats. The chase was so long that one helicopter ran out of fuel, forcing its station to ask another for a camera feed. <laughs> Jeez. Knowing that Collins was listening to KNX AM, sports announcer Pete Arbas, how, how do they know that? that? Called Simpson's former USC football coach, John McKay, and connected him to Simpson. Oh. How the hell they know what Channing right. was listening to? As both men wept, Simpson told McKay, okay, coach, I won't do anything stupid, I promise. Off the air, though. There is no doubt in my mind that McKay stopped OJ from killing himself in the back of that Bronco, Damn right. Arbogast said. Yeah, I bet. That's the announcer guy. Right. McKay reiterated on radio his pleas to Simpson to turn himself in instead of committing suicide. Right. He said, my God, we love you, Juice. Just pull over and I'll come out and I'll stand by you the rest of my life. Ooh. Walter Payton, Vince Evans, and others from around the country also pleaded with Simpson over the radio to surrender. Dang. I didn't know about this. Oh. Wow. So you got this guy and you got all these freaking people. I mean, that's cool. Trying to save their homie. They know he's a murderer. Do they, though? I think they do. <laughs> at Park Center, nope, Parker Center. At Parker Center, officials discussed how to persuade Simpson to surrender peacefully. Lange, who had interviewed Simpson about the murders on the 13th of June, realized that he had Simpson's cell phone number and called him repeatedly. You don't th- oh, wait, guys, I have a cell phone number. Right. A colleague hooked up a tape recorder up to Lange's phone and captured a conversation between Lange and Simpson, in which Lange repeatedly pleaded with Simpson to throw the gun out of the window, OJ. What's his name? Orang- Orang- Orenthal. Orenthal. For the sake of his mother and children. For your mother and your children. Oh, that's a little dangerous. You right. can just throw weapons out of the window. Right. Unload it first. Right. <laughs> Simpson apologized for not turning himself in earlier that day and responded that he was the only one who deserved to get hurt and was just going to go with Nicole. Mm-hmm. Uh, Simpson just asked Lange to just let me get to the house and said, I need the gun for me. Collins' voice is overheard in the recording after the Bronco had arrived at Simpson's home surrounded by the police, pleading with Simpson to surrender and end the chase peacefully. Oh, wow. Think how this story would have been totally different if we would have blew his brains out in the back of that Bronco. Oh, dude, yeah. Oh, my. I don't think it would have been as big. No. L.A. LA streets emptied and drink orders stopped at bars as people watched on television. Dude, the whole world, the whole country stopped. Every television showed the chase. ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN... There was no Fox back then, so. No. And local news outlets interrupted regularly scheduled programming to cover the incidents. 
Watched by an estimated 95 million na- viewers nationwide. Jeez. Only 90, million, only 90 million had watched that last year's Super Bowl. Jeez. Well, NBC continued coverage of Game 5 at NBA Finals. <laughs> Come on. Well, uh, they, they had it. Just keep going. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Houston Rockets, man, they're going back to back. Well, NBC continued coverage of Game 5 of the NBA Finals between New York Knicks and Houston Rockets at Madison Square Garden. The game appeared in a small box in the corner with Tom Brokaw covering the chase. So they had the chase was on the big screen, right. and they had the game on the, the small box, the, dude. I mean, New York Knicks in the yeah. Finals. I mean... The chase was covered live by ABC anchors Peter Jennings and Barbara Walters on behalf of the network's five news magazines, which achieved some of their highest ratings ever. Obviously. Uh, The chase was also broadcast internationally with Gaskin's relatives in France and China seeing him on television. Oh, shit. Thousands of spectators and onlookers packed overpasses along the route of the chase, waiting for the white Bronco. They did, too. In a festival-like atmosphere, many had signs urging Simpson to flee. They did, dude. (laughs) It was weird, man. I remember. I remember watching the chase. Mm Mm-hmm. It was like that. Spectators shouting, go, OJ, go! The famous slogan from Simpsons Hurts commercials. Mm-hmm. And encouraging the actions of a possibly suicidal murder suspect outraged Jim Hill. Among those broadcasting pleas to their friend to surrender. Jack Ferreira and Mike Smith were among those watching the chase not knowing why. Okay. They felt, they felt part of a common emotional experience, one author wrote, as they were wondered if OJ would commit suicide. They were wondering... Or he would escape. Would he be arrested? Or would he engage in some kind of violent confrontation? They didn't know what's going to happen here. Everybody thought that, right? Whatever might ensue, the shared adventure gave millions of viewers a vested interest. Yeah. A sense of participation. A feeling of being on the inside of national drama uh-huh. in the making. Oh, they were. Oh, definitely were. Simpson reportedly demanded that he be allowed to speak to his mother before he would surrender. Chase ended at about 8 p.m. On a, at his Brentwood estate 50 miles further where his son Jason ran out of the house gesturing wildly. And 27 SWAT officers awaited. After remaining in the Bronco for about 45 minutes, see, they let this guy do whatever he wanted. Oh, he had a gun. Simpson exited at 8.50 p.m. with a framed family photo and went inside for about an hour. Oh, damn. A police spokesman stated that he spoke to his mother and drank a glass of orange juice, causing the reporters (laughs) to laugh. Oh, no. Shapiro arrived. Simpson surrendered to authorities, and a few minutes later, in the Bronco, police found $8,000 in cash, a change of clothing, a loaded three fifty Magnum that would have blew his frickin' head to pieces. A United States passport, family pictures, a disguise kit with a <laughs> fake goatee and a mustache. <laughs> oh, jeez. Simpson was booked at Parker Center and taken to Men's Central Jail. Cowlings was, book was booked on suspicion of harboring a fugitive and held on 250000 I'm sure OJ forced him. Right. Uh, the Bronco Chase... The suicide note and the items found in the Bronco were not presented as evidence in the criminal trial. What? Why? Marsha Clark conceded that such evidence did imply guilt, yet defended her decision, citing the public reaction to the chase and suicide note as proof the trial had been compromised by Simpson's celebrity status. It's true. You ain't kidding. Most of the public, including Simpson's friend Al Michaels, interpreted his actions as an admission of guilt, yet thousands of people encouraged him to flee prosecution and were sympathetic to his feelings of guilt. Right. They were. Go, OJ! Imagine if that wasn't televised or anything. We just found out about it. This dude would be guilty. Oh, for sure. Because all that would be evidence. For sure. Wow. 20th of June, Simpson was arraigned and pleaded not guilty to both murders. He was held without bail. Obviously, oh, look wow. what happened before. Right. Jeez. The following day, a grand jury was called to determine whether to indict him for the two murders, but was dismissed on the 23rd of June. As a result of excess media coverage that could have influenced it, 
influence neutrality. Yeah. Instead, authorities held a probable cause hearing to determine whether to bring Simpson to trial. Well, I think you got to now. Right. California Superior Court Judge Kathleen Kennedy Powell ruled on July 7th that there was sufficient evidence to bring Simpson to trial for the murders. Right. You think so? Yeah. After a second arraignment on July 22nd, when asked how he pleaded to the murder, Simpson firmly stated, absolutely 100% not guilty. I mean... Jill Shibley testified to the grand jury that soon after the time of the murder, she saw a white Ford Bronco speeding away from Bundy Drive in such a hurry that it almost collided with a Nissan at the intersection of Bundy and San Vicente Boulevard. Uh, and that she recognized Simpson's voice. Yeah. How does she recognize his voice? Right, he's he's screaming out the window. He's like, get the fuck out of the way, motherfucker. Oh, it's kill two people. Oh. <laughs> she talked to television show Hard Copy. Remember Hard Copy? Yeah. For $5,000. That's it. You could have got more than that lately. Right. After which prosecutors declined to use her testimony at the trial. Yeah, Obviously. you can't do that. Jose Camacho of Ross Cut- Cutlery provided store receipts showing Simpson had purchased a 12-inch stiletto knife six weeks before the murders. Mm. The knife was recovered and determined to be dissimilar. Well, similar don't mean anything. Determined to be similar to the one the coroner said caused the stab wounds. The prosecution did not present this evidence at trial after Camacho sold his story to the National Enquirer for $12,000. So these guys are messing up the whole case. The whole freaking case. Wow. Well, tests on the knife determined that an oil used on new cutlery was was still present on the knife, indicating it had never been used. So there goes that knife anyway. So that guy got $12,500 for nothing. Yeah. Former NFL player and pastor Rosie Greer visited Simpson on November 13th at the L.A. County Jail in the days following the murders. Well, it's way, that's right. way beyond the murders. But right. a jailhouse guard, Jeff Stewart, testified to Judge Ito that at one point Simpson yelled to Greer that he didn't mean to do it, Man. after which Greer had urged Simpson to come clean. I doubt that. Right. Get out of here. <sighs> right. I mean, come on. Judge Ito ruled that the evidence was inadmissible in court. Of course court. it was. As being protected against, uh, as being protected because of the clearly pendant tri- privilege. What's that? Oh. You can say anything you want right. to declare. You're just like a, a lawyer. At first, Simpson's defense sought to show that one or more hitmen hired by drug dealers had murdered Brown and Goldman because they were both drug addicts. All three of them, motherfuckers. And Kalen. They're all four of them were right. drug addicts. Giving Brown a Colombian necktie mm-hmm. because they were looking for Brown's friend, Faye Resnick. A known cocaine user who had failed to pay for her drugs. Oh. I mean, that's plausible. That's definitely plausible, man. Cocaine's a... Uh, well, when you don't pay for it. <laughs> and you know it's not just $20. Right. She had, talking yeah, thousands, probably. Probably. She had stayed for several days at Brown's condo until entering rehab four days before the killings. Ito ruled that the drug killer theory was highly speculative mm. with no evidence to support it. Yeah. Consequently, Ito barred the jury from hearing it and prohibited Christian Reichart from testifying about his former girlfriend Resnick's drug problems. Well, that's not fair. Right. Rosa Lopez, a neighbor's Spanish-speaking housekeeper, stated on August 18th that she saw Simpson's Bronco parked outside his house at the time of the murders, mm. supporting his claim that he was home that night. Oh, look at Rosa. During cross-examination by Clark, Lopez admitted she was not sure what she saw at that time. What time she right. saw it. All right, what time she saw Simpson's Bronco, but the defense still intended to call on her. However, However. a tape... A taped July 29th statement by Lopez did not mention seeing the Bronco, but did mention another housekeeper was also there that night. The name? Sylvia Guerrero. Well, prosecutors then spoke with her, who said Lopez was lying and claimed the defense offered both housekeepers 5000 to say they saw the Bronco that night. Oh, no. When Ito warned the defense that... Why Gert- would it be only five? 
that don't make no sense. Right. OJ would have been like, I'll give you freaking $50,000. Right. <clears throat> when Ito warned the defense that Garrett's claim, as well as the earlier statement, did not mentioning the Bronco on the tape where Clark claims that she's clearly being coached on what to say, will be shown to the jury if Lopez testifies. They dropped her from the witness oh, list. Yeah, they yeah. did that. They did that quick. quickly. That was going on to what the media coverage had. When the trial began, all the networks were getting these hate mail letters because people's soap operas were being interrupted. <laughs> you don't want to mess with General Hospital mm-hmm. as the world turns, guys. Mm-mm. But then what happened was the people who like soap operas got addicted to the Simpson trial, obviously, because it's a soap opera. And they got really upset when the Simpson trial was over. <laughs> and people would come up to me on the street and say, God, I loved your show. <laughs> Marsha Clark, 2010. <laughs> the murders in trial, which were the biggest story I've ever seen, said a producer of NBC's Today, received extensive media coverage from the very beginning. Wow. At least one instant book was proposed two hours after the bodies were found. Holy crap. Was Law and Order and all that already around back then? Pretty sure, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And scheduled to publish only a few weeks later. There's already a book coming out about it. Oh, the case was a seminal event in the history of reality television. I don't know if it's reality. I right. guess it is reality, but the Los Angeles Times covered the case on its front page for more than 300 days after the murder. Of course they didn't. The nightly news broadcast from the big three television networks gave more airtime to the case than to the Bosnian War. Who cares? And the Oklahoma City bombing. Wow. Which didn't even happen yet. Combined. Jeez. The media outlets served an enthusiastic audience. One company put the loss of national productivity from employees following the case instead of working at $40 billion. <laughs> the Tonight Show with Jay Leno aired many skits on the trial. And the dancing, yeah, Marsha Clark got freaking raped on the comedy channels, dude. Anyway, uh, yep, Jay Leno aired many skits on trial. And the dancing Edos, a, a trope. Of dancers dressed as the judge was a popular recurring segment. According to the according to Howard Kurtz of the Washington Post, the acquittal was the most dramatic courtroom verdict in the history of Western civilization. I think so. Was participants in the case received much media coverage. Limo driver Park said the media <clears throat> offered him a hundred thousand but refused as he would removed re, he would be removed as a witness. So good man. Right. Fans approached Clark at restaurants and malls and when she got a new hairstyle during the trial, the prosecutor received a stand ovation on the courthouse. Did on the courthouse there. steps. I remember that shit. People approved of the change but advised her to wear more fitted suits and tailored skirts. Wow. Okay people. All right. People magazine that is not just regular people. Right. Jeez oh Pete. And she did. She started wearing those skirts. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. While Cochran, Bailey, and Dershowitz were... That's, that's a hell of a law firm there. The law firm of Cochran, Bailey, and Dershowitz. Is that what they were? I don't know if it was law firm, but... Right. That was just three lawyers. Right. These guys were already well-known. Others, like Kaylin, became celebrities. Right. That, that was probably the biggest... That was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to Cato. Oh, definitely. And Resnick and Simpson's girlfriend, Paula Barberi, appeared in Playboy. Oh, geez. Who's Resnick? Resnick is the drug addict, friend of Brown, oh, and right. Simpson's girlfriend, both paired in Playboy. So both these guys are going to Playboy. Nice. Those involved in trial following their own media coverage when Larry King appeared in the courtroom after a meeting with Ito. Both Simpson and Clark praised King's talk show. Okay. <laughs> OJ's like, I love your talk show. Marsha's like, you know what, OJ? I do, too. <laughs> Interesting, the case was worldwide. Russian President Boris Yeltsin First question to uh, President Clinton when they met in 1995 was, hey, do you think O.J. did it? Do you think O.J. did it? And Bill was like, I did not inhale. He's like, that wasn't the question. Uh, uh, it's, not, it's three years from now anyway. Right. <laughs> right. Did, 
Do you think OJ did it? He's like, well, well. <laughs> the issue of whether to allow any video cameras in the courtroom was among the first issues Judge Ito had to decide, ultimately ruling that the live camera coverage was warranted. Of course it was. Ito was later criticized for his decision by other legal professionals. Why? Uh, Ito was coerced into his dis- decision by the L.A. Uh, County Police everybody. Department. The, uh, Bill, yeah. Bill Clinton himself. DOJ, Bill Clinton. Right. Oh, man. Dershowitz said that he believed that Ito, along with others related to the case, such as Clark, Furman, and Kaline, was influenced to some degree by the media presence and uh, related publicity. Of course they were. Uh, Cato Kaline did so many talk shows after this, it was ridiculous. Yeah. The trial was covered in 2,237 news segments from 1994 through 1997. Jeez. It was also criticized for allowing the trial to become a media circus and not doing enough to regulate the court proceedings, which is true. Among the reporters were covered, I know, these, these uh, um, was it a, a trial with jurors? Of course it was. Oh, dude, it's impossible. How does a juror not going to watch media footage and get affected uh, you know be biased sure. i'm pretty sure the jury They're was, locked. was sequestered right they better it would be. have to be right among the reporters were co- <clears throat> among the reporters who covered the trial daily from the courtroom and a media area that was dubbed camp oj <laughs> Jeez. were steve futterman of cbs news linda Duch, and michael fleeman of the associated press dan whitcomb of Reuters. routers is it routers yeah uh, Reuters to me, as it looks like. <laughs> Jeanette Gilmore of the L.A. Daily News. Andrea Ford of the L.A. Times. Michelle Caruso of New York Daily News. Dan Abrams of Court TV. Harvey Levin of KCBS. Oh, I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> David McLorglick. Margolick. David Margolick of the New York Times. Writers Dominic Dunn, Joe McGinnis, and Joseph Bosco also had full-time seats in the courtroom. Oh, you know, I Dominic... Joseph Bosco didn't turn out to be a, right. a you know, blue guy. You know, uh, Dominic Dunn was in there. She writes oh. all those little murder mystery mm-hmm. shit. She was like, I'm getting some good uh, mm-hmm. info on that. I wonder how many, how many, uh, wonder how many books she wrote based on that. She made Joseph Bosco give her his notes. Right. <laughs> what note you got? June 27, 1994, Time published a cover story, An American Tragedy, with a photo of Simpson on the cover. The image was darker than a typical magazine image, and the Time photo was darker than the original, as shown right. on a Newsweek cover release at the same time. Time became the subject of media of a media scandal. Commentators uh, found that its staff had used photo manipulation to darken the photo. Well, no shit! And speculated it was to make Simpson appear more menacing. Like in the shadows or something. I get it. I get it. Right there. Yeah. Obviously, they darkened the photo. Uh, right. I mean, so what? It's a like magazine. You he, all do what you want. He does look a little more menacing. He does. He looks scary. Scary guy. Yeah. <laughs> After the publication of the photo, Drew widespread criticism of racist editorializing, editorializing, and yellow journalism. No, not legitimate. Right. Yeah, I would say it's pretty yellow. Right. Like today's MSM. Right. Uh, time publicly apologized. They're like, we're sorry. But are we? No. They had their fingers crossed behind their back. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Charles Ogletree, a former criminal defense attorney and current professor at Harvard Law School, he said in a 2005 interview for PBS Frontline that the best investigative reporting around the events and facts of the murder and evidence of trial was by the National Enquirer. Go figure. Go figure. A parody freaking uh, uh, magazine, and these guys covered Dude, the trial. National Enquirer is today's, was then's TMZ. Right, but it was mostly all garbage. Well, I know, but they they did some dirty stuff to get their hands on. Um, right. When when if you I bet you if you look at National Enquirer's uh, history, right. anytime like a big news story or whatever, they're probably were the first ones oh, back in the yeah, day yeah. to get all that oh, shit, dude. Yeah. 
Just like TMZ is the right, always, right. always the first one to That's get the true. dirt, dude. Always. Yeah. Next quarter messed up when they started posting the UFOs and the aliens. Well, they were doing that at the same time I as know. us, though. Right. That's true. The right. Bat Boy and yeah, all that Boy. shit, dude. That's true. But supposedly the Bat Boy is real. <laughs> Why? Because National Enquirer told you so? <laughs> I think so. What was the other one? Uh, it was like National Examiner, I think it was. Right. Or Star Magazine. Yeah, Star right? Magazine. Yeah. yeah, I remember Star. Uh, well, that was more like the National Enquirer. Right. National Enquirer was. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yep, Examiner, I remember that. Well, and the Inquirer. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it for the first part of the O.J. Simpson murder case. That was obviously about the murders and the uh, bron- the famous Bronco chase. And- so far, everything points to O.J. being a, uh, high on crystal meth and murdering uh, two people like he did on his film set. That's what it seems to me. Mm. That's what it seems to me. Well, I mean, has anybody ever doubted that? I don't think anybody out there says OJ's innocent. No. I don't think there's one person that says he's innocent. Well, the jury did. Well, (laughs) 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 that's true. There was 12 juries that did. Jurors that did. That's true. true. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, that was the... Part one. It was only. I think he went on to play in uh, Naked Gun after that, or was it before? No, Naked Gun was, was before, definitely before. Right. He did nothing after that. Right. Um, yeah, this episode obviously a little shorter, still forty something minutes. No, but um, we can't jump into what's the, happening next. The uh, next, the next episode obviously is going to be the whole trial. Right. And then obviously the aftermath and right. what happened to everybody and stuff like that. We can't, we can't like jump that. into the start of trial and then leave. Right. You can't do some of the trial and be like, oh, that's uh, it for part one. Right. Otherwise, this episode would have been legitimately like two, two plus hours. Not having that, but the next one will be an hour plus, probably, with mm. all the stuff we got going on on the trial. Definitely, we're not doing a three parter. Um, so with that, yeah, come make sure you come back next week because it's about to get juicy Ooh, with, with all the um, um, evidence getting introduced and the cross examinations and then the uh, witnesses and all this good stuff. So it's going to be a good stuff. Uh, there'll be some shit. When after his acquittal, like if he did an infomercial for uh, knife set, <laughs> it cuts through. It cuts through everything, and it stays sharp. It cuts through larynx, guaranteed to stay sharp for life. It yeah. cuts through C three vertebrae. <laughs> Stabs in the head easily. <laughs> Look how easily it goes through this muskmelon. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't be joking about this. I mean. Yeah, of course we should. Right. That's going to do it for us. If you guys are uh, interested in more interested in more American history, we do another show called Battles of the American Civil War, where, the, as the name suggests, we cover the battles of the American Civil War. We do. Not the Revolutionary or uh, World War One or the American Indian War. or the Civil War. The Civil War, guys. Um, we just finished up. Yeah, we just finished up um, 1861 uh, was our last episode that was just released a couple days ago. If you're hearing this on the day this comes out. Um, we will be diving headfirst this Friday, every Friday, into 1862, arguably one of the bloodiest years of the war, probably the bloodiest year of the war. And um, This yeah. is a year where everybody was like, dang, <laughs> we're at war, guys. This is real. Oh, man. Um, if you're interested in that, go check us out, Battles of the American Civil War, or wherever you find your podcast. We'll be back next week for part two of the OJ murder saga, all about the trial and the aftermath. We'll be back then. We'll see you then. We are the Mouth of Michiganders with Bang Dang.